Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. You're very welcome into the Letter from Ireland show, series four, episode two. In the last episode, we went to far-flung countries of Tasmania and Australia, and we have an exciting start here today to today's show, but we're not going so far afield. We'd like to invite you to travel with us in the footsteps of the Normans in this Letter from Ireland show. In each show, we love to share with you our visits to the places of your Irish ancestors, and today's show takes us on a special journey across the water to England and Wales, where we are going to follow in the footsteps of our Norman ancestors. Let's discover their story and visit some of their castles, especially those linked with Ireland. And let's discover why many of our surnames are linking back to these Norman warriors. But before we start into today's show, remember you can see all the links that we mention in the show notes at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 402. Now, Mike Collins and myself take many trips along the Irish Ancestry Trail, but the Norman Trail was a special one because it was our first trip and we never realised that it would grow into becoming one and the first of many ancestral trails that we would follow. It seems, as one of our Green Room members have put, has put it so well, she said, it seems as if the ancestors are calling us. So we are going to follow the call of our Norman ancestors in today's show, sit back and enjoy, and we're going to recount the journey and the stories of our Norman forefathers. Perhaps some of you, you know, think, is my surname descended from a Norman surname? Well, perhaps you do have a Norman surname. And one of the men who knows quite a lot about that is my husband, Mike Collins. So I'm going to invite him in and he will chat a little bit to us about Norman history. So let's ask Mike to come and join us. A great way to discover some more about your Irish heritage and maybe your Irish surnames is to delve into Mike's Letters from Ireland. So why don't we kick off today's show and have a look back at one of Mike's weekly Letters from Ireland. Now, these letters are written each Sunday here from our home in County Cork and they go out to over 30,000 readers. If you'd like to receive your own free letter from Ireland, I'm going to leave a link in the show notes and we'd love to have you come and join us there. Now, today's letter on the Normans comes from A Letter from Ireland, Volume 1. So Mike wrote that a few years ago, and it's called The Norman Surnames of Ireland. So what better thing to do than to invite Mike in here to have a chat with me about that letter that he wrote. And Mike, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Karina. And I know you always have a cup of tea as you write the letter, but today's tea is significant to this letter, so I'm going to mention it. Would you by any chance be having a Barry's tea as you wrote this letter on the Norman surnames? Well, you and I know that we are, but others might be guessing, but yes, indeed, we're going to do that. (laughs) So, speaking of Barry's tea, tell us a little bit about Barry. Right. Well, I I suppose it's kind of uh, an interesting one, really, Karina, because we're speaking of Barry's tea, as you say. um, And, of course, that's one of what we call the Norman surnames in Ireland. Uh Aha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I know this this podcast today is all about the Normans and the Norman kind of, I suppose, kind of trail into Ireland. So as you say there, we're going to focus on a letter I wrote some time ago and I'll read it through, but we'll kind of have a chat around as we go through as well, okay? Well, I always find the letters very informative to give us the background of where the surnames have come from and their origins. That's it. So this one that you wrote on the Norman surnames in the um, Irish family tree, I'd love to hear some more about that. Yeah, well, so, okay, so when we hear the word Norman in Ireland today and indeed anywhere else, we often think of the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland about around about 1170 that we learned about in school here in Ireland. Now, I don't know about you, Karina, but many of my own friends today have Norman surnames, people like Roach, Barry, Fitzgerald and so on. We attended the same classes in school, played for the same teams, shared a lot of growing up together. And I bet you never realised they had Norman surnames at that time. Well, we're all Irish and that was that, you know. <laughs> so uh, what I have noticed since though is many of the readers of Letter from Ireland Greenwood members and uh, listeners here as well have Irish surnames that have a Norman lineage. Many have Norman surnames in their Irish family tree. But where did our Norman ancestors come from? Well, to find out, we need to go back to another time and another country. And I, I believe there, there's a link back to the Vikings. Am I right there, Mike, with regard there to you go. where are they? Yeah. So I've called this the Norman homeland. So here we go. By 876 AD, the Viking threat was well established over much of Europe. Many Vikings were launching raiding parties from the Norwegian home, returning home with the spoils for later trade. Around this time, a man called Harald Feinherr, I think I got that pronunciation right, was asserting himself as the first true king of Norway. Not all were happy with his approach, and this included a man called Hrolfer, later known as Rollo. Now, Rollo was the leader of a band of Vikings, and indeed you might remember the name Rollo as it was established in the uh, TV series Vikings as well, Karina. Oh yes, I think that's where a lot of us learnt about the Vikings. Anyway, his band were together for over 20 years, raiding and extorting tribute on many shores across Britain, Ireland and France, and sometimes even further afield. Now, on the 17th of November, 876, Rollo and his men arrived in the northwest part of France, around the modern city of Rouen, that's R-O-U-E-N. Now, this time they had no home in Norway to which to return. So it's always an interesting thing, Karina, when you burn your bridges with regards to kind of uh, where you're going to go next. So they were looking for a territory in which to settle and use as a base for further raids. They were looking for a new place to call home. Over the next 40 years, this band of Vikings carried out raids from this new base and sent a clear message to the local rulers, the local French, you could say, that they saw this territory as their new home. Charles, King of the Franks, pragmatically decided to formalise this territory as the new homeland of the group, and the Duchy of Normandy, or Duchy of Normandy, was established with Rollo as the first Duke of Normandy. So there we start with the Vikings settling, So, and we've now... They're now in France and it's Normandy. And is this, um, this way of life must have been a huge improvement, really, for the Vikings because the land there, I imagine, was much better. Yeah, and I know you're going to talk about that, Karina, and it's like, it is all about land, you know? Yes, okay. Um, I suppose, really, the stony, um, heavy soil of Normandy was really good because I think they could yield four times more 
um, on this soil cultivating their grain than they could in Norway. And the normal focus was always really, wasn't it, on growing crops as opposed to, I suppose, in Ireland, where we were focused mainly on cattle. Um, and the Normans were clever too because they intermarried and made alliances. And I think we also see that when they came to Ireland, Mike, don't we? And copied the French hierarchy headed by a class of nobility. Uh, one aspect of the Viking ancestry that the Normans were slow to lose, however, was their restless ambition. And I suppose that brings us to the next uh, chapter in their story, because they, they always wanted to expand beyond their boundaries, gather more material possessions, land, power and glory. So the Normans could back up their individual ambition with the power of feudalism, farming and fighting technology. And God was on their side. And of course, they used castles which we see a lot of still in Ireland, don't we? Yeah, yeah. it's kind of, you know, there's quite a shopping list there of things that gave the Normans an advantage, even over the local French, so to speak. Um, but as you say there, Karina, they, they had this kind of ability to kind of seize the land, so to speak, assert themselves, but then actually integrate in a way that suited themselves, but also kind of suited, I suppose, kind of the, uh, the ideas of the locals. And of course, you could say as well, they actually brought a lot of law and order to a particular place that they actually established themselves. So, in other words, benefiting the local people, really, even though they might have been invited in or invaded. Well, yeah, it was feudalism then after yes. that, of course. You knew where you stood. Okay. You know? yeah. So they invaded over time Britain, Sicily and Ireland and started the first crusades to the Near East, where they established many more strongholds. And that was out of Normandy, yeah. Wow. But in 1035, I think that's an important date, really, isn't it? the Duke Robert of Normandy was killed on the return from one of those first crusades and his son, William, gradually assumed his power and title. So in 1066, the King of England at that time, Edward the Confessor, died. Now, this William of Normandy had a distant claim to the throne of England and he was ready to assert his claim. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if you remember being in Normandy or basically being in the UK or England, South England, yes. looking across... You had a short leap there between the two countries. So, you know, you had, you had this beautiful, fertile land to the north that I suppose kind of in the south of England had actually, you had the Anglo-Saxons and to the north you had the Danes, uh, pretty much kind of still, if I remember rightly. But, you know, you, you had this kind of superior fighting force and organisational force established itself in a very small area in Normandy and was actually just looking with great ambition to expand itself. And they looked across, but in September yep. 1066, William William's forces were ready to invade England and take what he considered now at this stage to be his rightful place on the throne of England. So his boats, knights, war horses, archers and soldiers numbered in their thousands and they set sail in October and met the English army at, of course, the famous Battle of Hastings in 14th of October 1066. A full day of matched and ferocious fighting and William won the crown of England. So a hierarchy of just 10,000 Norman knights went to replace the aristocracy of England with William now called, of course, we all kind of know him now, don't we, as William, William the Conqueror. Uh, and just to say, he was known as William the Bastard before that. That was the official title at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, because of his particular lineage. And just give you a little story there as well, Karina, because one of the things that the Normans became very well known for in England when they established themselves was actually um, marking the land, knowing exactly down to the last pound, shilling and pence, who owned what, the value of it and so on. And there is a story that goes back to the point that when William was actually a young fellow, 
uh, there's some, um, I suppose, kind of local treaty or agreement being established between his father and another local lord. And William was actually called in to witness this. And the way he was calling it to witness this, he stood in front of his father. He, they explained just what was going on. They actually stated the agreement. And then he slapped William very hard across the face. His and father said, slapped there him. There you go. And you won't forget that now. <laughs> so the joke goes that William, mostly due to not wanting to repeat such things again and again, was very, I suppose, kind of astigious in the future then with the guards noting agreements on paper and making sure that everybody had agreements and signed them and so on. So that's a nice story to have anyway, whether it's true or not. That's <laughs> fantastic. And and of course, then, Mike, uh, to move on, I suppose it was those descendants five generations later, the descendants and vassals of this aristocracy formed by William that made the main part of the invasion of Ireland from Wales in 1170. Yeah, I, this is kind of interesting because, well, it's all interesting, of course, but, you know, you're not talking about many generations. You're talking about grandchildren and great-grandchildren, if you like, of the original knights who came over. From, from 1066 Nor- to yeah. 1170. Yeah. That's it. Now, just an important thing here, because as I mentioned there, the Normans are really good strategically. They knew how to impose their culture by going in at the right levels across wherever they were invading, um, establishing the power bases, and through a relatively small number of people, making sure that that actually proliferated over time. And one of the things they actually did, Karina, was they, uh, William in this case, to start with, he would have actually granted lands in England to his various knights. But part of that would have been to actually protect the borders as well. Okay. So clever strategically. Absolutely. So let's say a Norman knight might get kind of a main body of land in a very fertile part of Britain, and then they might get a lesser kind of domain as well, further, for example, along the Welsh coast to the south, where they could keep an eye on any kind of, I suppose, kind of boats coming in in the first place, but also the actual Welsh in the interior territories. So as a result, you actually had a string of uh, Norman castles established, for example, along the south coast of Wales, all the way from Bristol in England, working way west then. And you had essentially, I suppose you could say, kind of the borderlands from the point of view of the Normans at that particular point, at those particular places. And of course, as we'll discover later on our story, they did actually make that leap finally over to Ireland, but more about that later. (laughs) And the mention of Wales is very important from that point of view. Yeah. And I mean, they brought their fighting, farming and feudal technology with them, as well as that insatiable ambition. And I suppose really when we look around Ireland today in the landscape and politics has been shaped by the Normans, as you say. Absolutely. You know, our law system through England, which was shaped through the Normans in the first place for the most part and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the very vital thing that we all carry and that our listeners, I'm sure, would be interested in is the Norman surnames, because we still have those surnames, as you say, your friends at school carrying those names. Yeah. So, you know, I suppose if you kind of work it out, Karina, there was, um, and we'll talk about this now, but the Norman surnames of your Irish heritage, they're, they're, they're quite interesting to kind of group into different groups. So, for example, when the Normans actually came across from Normandy to England, they brought along, if you like, the main, um, I suppose, the main knights. But the knights, for the most part, were actually known by, um, you know, a nickname like William the Conqueror, for argument's sake. Or indeed, son of, you know, so there was no particular surnames in place at that point in time. Alongside that, however, they used to make a lot of use of local fighting men to join the bigger army. So they took in, for example, uh, knights, or not knights, but fighting people from, let's say, nearby Flanders, just a little bit to the north, or different parts of France, including, let's say, in Brittany. And as a result, you get the surname Fleming from Flanders, a Flemish. You also get the surname um, Brett from Brittany 
And of course, later, when the actual knights arrived in Ireland from their outposts in Wales, they brought the surname Welsh, what became Welsh eventually with them as well, essentially meaning a local of Wales. Right. who had no particular lineage, but actually came from Wales. So Does that make sense? Very locational, yeah, yes. Yeah, so the, the Norman naming conventions were typically the same as many Irish naming conventions only derived from French. You had, for let's start with this one, the son of, or Fils, F-I-L-S, Fi, F-I-L-S, phonetically became Fitz. So, for example, you had Fitzgerald, the of son of course. Gerald. Okay. okay, is that similar to the Irish convention where we'd have mock son of that's exactly the so same so you've got mock and they had obviously the french fee yeah and yeah. you know that that was the name for a single individual at first and it eventually became a full surname so you have gerald of windsor and basically his uh, offspring became known as fitzgerald over time so they were all sons of there you go gerald yeah. fitzgerald so the next one down then would be somebody from a place or of a place so you had de or de so for example you had de barry you know, from a place called Barry, of Barry, and Barry was a place in the south of Wales. And in Ireland, that became an Irish Debarra and eventually became the surname we know today as Barry. A very common name. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we have lots of Fitzes. We have lots of, let's say, normally the De has been dropped. So De Cogan, De Barry, and so on. We don't So now really we use, call them Barry and yeah. Cogan. You might yeah. use De Corsi, for example, from time to time, but even that's become Corsi over time. Excellent. And then I suppose the last one, Queen, is you actually have a nickname or a role, like we saw William the Conqueror. The poor lad, his name was known as King William eventually, but you know, he earned, he earned his stripes. So, for example, you have uh, one of the guys who came into Ireland in the first place was known as Le Grosse, Raymond Le Grosse, which meant the fat one, which was a nice one to hang on to yourself. But another, I suppose, more fi- Irish, famous Irish role name was Fitzwalter, son of Walter. But the actual lineage there assumed the role of in French known as uh, butlier, as in the person who handled the bottles, which basically meant the person looking after the, um, I suppose, kind of the import duty and so on, which is a very important role. And that became butler in Ireland over time, which, of course, is a very big surname in the southeast of Ireland. Very big surname. So the Wonderful nor- history there, though, isn't yeah, there? And, it, and those names. It's a bit of fun, too, isn't it? Just kind of realizing how the nicknames and the places and the son of and so on came along, you know? Yeah. Um, and actually, it just reminds me, I was working in the green room there the other day and I saw that somebody wrote in that they had a surname Fleming. And I wonder, do they know the, the background to that now? So Yeah. And of course, Fleming, just take one example, that actually turns up in Scotland and north of England uh, quite a lot. But it was because of these Norman knights coming from Normandy in the first place. Well, Mike, I know you're a fund of information on Norman surnames and that you have quite a lot of them listed as well at the end of that letter on Irish surnames. So you've Barrett's, you've Barry, you've Crosby, Fitzgerald's, Lyons, Marshall, many more that we'd never, Prendergast, Roach, Rice, Wolf. Yeah, and just to kind of point out maybe some of those, um, you know, some of them are very established, I suppose, as kind of Norman families. Um, that actually were granted large areas of land in Ireland and others, you know, like Welsh and so on, some of them might have been, let's say, simply kind of accompanying their lords at the time. But as you say, you've you've just kind of jumped into a couple of them there. Uh, I, I wrote down Branagh, for example, which is actually from the Irish Brathnock, which actually means a Welsh person. So Brathnock, Branagh and Welsh are kind of all the same surname. I have Brett down there, which I explained earlier, is from Brittany. Um, there's also things there like uh, Burke, which probably has the highest number of Norman castles today on the west coast, on the west of Ireland, I should say. So, kind of a huge kind of lineage and impact there in Ireland. We kind of tend to look at Burke as being an Irish name today, I think. 
Um, working away down then, you have a lot of names that have kind of been, I suppose, kind of, you know, kind of been sucked into kind of a later anglicization. So you have names like, um, let's say, Dalton, you know, and that's the uh, Alton. So from Alton, as in Alton Towers around there in Britain. And that was initially D apostrophe A-L-T-O-M, became Dalton over time. Or indeed, um, the other one, I suppose, is, that's an interesting one, is uh, Tobin, which actually comes from St. Aubin, Saint, A-U-B-Y-N, but it became Tobin over time. So, there's, yeah, there's a wide range of kind of very interesting names, Powers, Prendergast, Purcell, uh, Sinnott, Stapleton, you know, lots and lots of different ones, and they're all listed there. Well, if the listeners would like maybe to see the full list that you've put at the end of your letter on the Irish surnames, um, the Norman surnames in Ireland, we'll let a link below at the end of the show notes. Now, Greg, I just asked you something, because, you know, we've been dipping into the theory, and we know the local Irish and so on, but what did we realise as we went through this? Well, I, when I just chatting to you here made me realise that I'm so familiar with the Norman castles here in Ireland. And, uh, you know, we just go on the road there on a trip up to Dublin, down south, west, whatever direction. And there's a castle at the side of the road, more than not likely Norman. But we re- I never really realised the connection back to the south of Wales and England. We just hadn't visited those at all. So where our real St. Norman ancestors had come from. And now that I see the connection so strongly into our Irish heritage, we decided, didn't we, Mike, to take a trip? Oh, yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we no, don't need many excuses to take a trip on the Heritage no, Trail, but no. this was a very important one. And I think this might have been the first trip we took outside of Ireland. Actually, Karina, wasn't it for, I suppose, kind of the reverse idea of the ancestral trail? So rather than tracking the place where people went to from Ireland, for example, after the famine or after you know, the 1700s, we decided to go back to look where people came from. That's right. And we did it over the course of about 24 hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was uh, a, an, an immersion by fire there almost. But we started off in Bristol in the southwest of England. And from there, we visited the castles linked to the Normans along the south coast of Wales and finished off our journey back here in Ireland on Banno Beach, where the Normans first set foot in Ireland. Oh, yeah. So that was quite a historic finish there. And we did that very late in the evening. And I'm not sure of any, but I've never heard of anybody actually doing that ever before and kind of calling into those castles along the way. Well, how about we go and do it with our listeners now? I think and we'll, better do that. We'll yeah. bring them along with us. Let's go. On the Norman Trail, our first port of call was Bristol City. And after much searching, we found the ruins of Bristol Castle in Castle Park near a modern shopping centre today. It wasn't at all what we expected. You see, Bristol was bombed very badly in the war and so all that remains now of the once mighty castle was a very low stone wall and some stone foundations of the rooms. However, there were many pictures of what this castle and area looked like before the devastation of the war. So here I am at Bristol Castle. This was once a magnificent castle guarding the bustling city of Bristol, whose wealth was made in part with trades between Ireland and England. And the merchants here in the city at that time would have partly funded the expeditions of the Norman Knights to Ireland in the late 1100s. 
Well, the story's always the same. It takes money to go off on those conquering expeditions, and the Norman invasion to Ireland was no different. Next, we headed to Wales, as we wanted to see the home and castle of one of the most famous of all those Norman knights who ventured to Ireland. Can you guess who he was? Have a listen and all will be revealed. Here we are in Chepstow in Wales and I'm standing in front of one of the first Norman castles built in stone and of course the reason we are here is that this castle is linked with Richard de Clare who was asked by Diarmuid MacMurrow back in the 1100s to come to Ireland to help him conquer some more territory so he would have been one of the first Norman lords to arrive in Ireland and of course we now know him better as Strongbow. He then married de, um, Aoife and there's that famous painting the marriage of Strongbow and Aoife and it all started back here at this little village which is now a town of Chepstow in Wales. Yes it was Richard de Clare or Strongbow that's another one of those nicknames and Strongbow's castle in Chepstow is enormous and still standing very proud in the Welsh countryside. We had learnt all about Strongbow in our history books at school and his romance and marriage to the beautiful Irish Colleen seemed very romantic when we were school children. Of course, this marriage was in reality a very political alliance as it merged the cultures of the Norman lords and their Irish chieftains, ensuring some peace in the alliance. We were fortunate enough to know all about the Normans in Ireland because of one famous Norman called Gerard Barry. And so we had to go off to visit his castle in the south of Wales. We travelled down the coast further and arrived to see an imposing castle up on the hill to our left with a wonderful view down over the sea. A common name in Ireland is Michael Collins and another common name is Gerald Barry. And we're here at Manorbier Castle on the Pembrokeshire coast in Wales. And behind me stands the home of the Barry's family. Gerald Barry was a man of letters born here in the 12th century. And he documented, he was very famous as he documented the arrival of the Normans in Ireland. This is the seat of the Barry family here in Wales and it reminds us of another Barry and I think maybe it is time now for that Barry and let's have a cup of Barry's tea. We wouldn't be Irish if we didn't like our cup of tea and we had a refreshing cuppa before we continued on our journey that day. I thought no more of Gerald Barry and his castle and oh boy was I in for a surprise because I learned quite recently that I had the Norman Barry surname in my own family. We discovered it was my paternal grandmother's maiden name. If only I'd known at the time. But I was blissfully unaware as I sat in the sunshine with that imposing castle to my back that through my father's mother I had links back to this Barry castle in Menorbier in Wales. You can listen into that story because we did a previous podcast on it and I'll leave a link in the show notes for you to check out at a lettermireland.com forward slash 402 as it tells the story of my own ancestral journey back along that Barry line. But now we were headed further along the coast in search of a castle linked to another famous Norman surname and one connected with Strongbow and Ireland. 
I'm here on the Pembrokeshire coast in beautiful Carew village, standing in front of Carew Castle in Wales. And this was a very important, imposing castle. And for us Irish, it was where the Fitz some of the Fitzgerald family would have been born and would have come, of course, with strong woe to Ireland. It was changed um, a lot in the 1600s into a comfortable residence uh, by a John Perrett and it says that there is at least two or one big fireplace in all the big rooms and there was a masonette built for the chaplain. There were fantastic cellars seemingly for wine and also the constable of the guard was also able to live in the castle. Today it's a bright sunny day, a lot of people coming to visit the castle and it's one of our first castles that we have come to visit here in Wales. I'm sure now we must have some listeners with the Fitzgerald surname. And I myself have lots of Fitzgerald friends here in Ireland. Carew Castle is open for visitors and the village of Carew is pretty. So it's a perfect place to stop if you ever find yourself over that way. But we were off again now and we were headed to our final castle on our Norman Trail. And this one also had links to the Fitzgeralds. This is Pembroke Castle in Pembroke, Wales, seat of the de Clare family for many years. Now, Strongbow based his efforts into Ireland from this castle in the 1100s. Another man of note who lived in this castle was Gerald of Windsor. Now you might know this Gerald because he is the Gerald in the Fitzgerald surname that is now very common in Ireland and throughout the world. Well, did you hear the birds singing in the background there? It was such a beautiful place and we were so lucky that our day in Wales was a beautiful spring day with sunshine all the way. And Pembroke Castle is right on the water, so I felt we got a glimpse into the life of the Norman Knights, just being there at Pembroke and visiting all the castles that day linked to our Norman ancestors. But now, Mike and myself were to take the next step on the trail and head across the sea to Ireland. It was a blustery day on the stern of the ship as we recorded the sea voyage. We're sailing today between the south coast of Wales and over to the southeast of Ireland to Wexford. We're following along the route that the Normans would have taken in their initial expeditions into Ireland in the 1100s. Now, Diamond MacMurra had enlisted their help to come back to Ireland with him to get, regain his title as the King of Leinster. And the Normans in turn were looking for new lands and riches in Ireland. The first city that they overran and captured was that of the Viking city of Waterford and that marked their initial entrance and successes in their campaigns in Ireland. Now the voyage today for us is taking three and a half hours. I imagine it took a lot longer for the Normans and while Mike and I know what's waiting ahead of us here in Ireland, they however had a lot of new adventures ahead of them at that time. It was coming on for twilight and the day was drawing to a close as we travelled down the country lanes and then suddenly there it was before us, Bano Beach. After a long day's travel, following in the footsteps of our Norman ancestors, we couldn't head down to Cork before stepping on to that stony, historic beach. 
We're here in Bannostrand, County Wexford, where the first Norman expedition into Ireland was led by the knight Robert Fitzstephen. He landed here in Bannostrand between the Viking town of Waterford and Wexford, and so began the Norman invasion into Ireland. Now we have followed the Norman path from across from Wales over here to the coast of Wexford today and while the place looks extremely different now as I believe the whole area has been silted up and there was an island formed here beside the strand which is now again reverted back into the mainland one can still get the feeling of the history in this place. Wouldn't you wonder how many sunbathers visiting the beach each year relies the history of the landscape all around them? Those Normans that landed on the beach that day have shaped and intertwined into all our lives. But our journey must come to an end. So a warm thanks to all you listeners for your company on today's Letter from Ireland show. Thanks too to the Green Room and to our readers on the Letter from Ireland. I hope you enjoyed our Norman travels. And if you're wondering about your surname, perhaps it's of Norman origin, would you like to check that out? Do go to our show link at lettermireland.com forward slash 402. And you'd never know, we might be related. Also, you could feel free to share any stories of co or comments that you have there as well. And we look forward to you joining us again next week on the Letter from Ireland show. So everybody, slán, that's goodbye in Irish. So till we meet again, slán gafol. Bye for now, Karina. Just before we go, thanks again for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called The Green Room. You can find full details of The Green Room at lettermireland.com forward slash green room. And remember there, green room is all one word. The Green Room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. It's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. You get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at aletterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me. And I'll be back next week with another installment of The Letter from Ireland Show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Slán Karina. <laughs>